0: You are listening to the podcast of the Y Church of the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his
1: love. Here comes Sherry. She's going to read for us. We're going to be in Second Chronicles, and we're going to read these first 12 verses of chapter 20.
0: After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, with some of the Meunites, came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, A vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It's already in Hazazon Tamar, that is, and Gedi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in the front of the new courtyard and said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of your friend Abraham? They have lived in it and have built it in a sanctuary in your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name, and we will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. But now here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance? Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are
1: on you. Thanks very much, Sherry, for reading. You know, it's a tricky Bible reading when the scripture reader and I have to do a consult on the phone on Saturday. (laughs) That was a doozy. Well, what is something that you have had to keep an eye on? I had so many different things come to mind, and I'm sure if we compiled our answers, boy, it'd be a long list. I can hear my dad's voice telling me to keep an eye on the ball. And I can also hear his voice telling me to keep an eye on my own bobber. (laughs) I once caught a northern on East Battle Lake fast asleep. (laughs) As you get older, there's new things to keep an eye on. You might keep a pretty close eye on your crush in middle school or high school. Or the speed limit if you're learning to drive. And then comes the real adult stuff. You have to keep your eye on your bank account your calorie count and of course you have to keep your eye on the time you have to keep an eye on the weather on the oven and on the grill you might keep an eye on the stock market or these days you might be keeping an eye on interest rates and if you have a dog you better keep an eye on him too but by far the thing that I have to keep my eye on the closest these days is my youngest son So I'm trying to play a game of Scrabble with some of the older kids, and before I even know what's going on, there he is, climbing onto the dining room table, and he's swatting at the light fixture. So I don't know, he's not even two yet. You can pray for us over these coming years. So speaking of prayer, that has been our focus these days, these past five weeks. He hears my voice has been our Lenten study as we make our way towards Easter. And we brought this study together just out of a desire to grow in our prayer life. What it's like to walk and talk with God and to hear His voice. And it's been our aim to increase the culture of prayer here at the Y Church over the years. And that means both corporately in our prayer life on Sundays, you know, encouraging stopping by to see a prayer minister or in our worship service. Or things like prayer in our Y groups or in kids ministry. Or on Wednesday nights, in our small groups, we pray every week with students. But also, our desire is that you would grow personally in prayer. That Sunday after Sunday, as we've studied throughout Lent, this topic, that you would be equipped and inspired by God's Word in your personal prayer life. So that's just you and God in your quiet time, or as you drive in the car, or as you go about your school day, or your work day. That you would grow in prayer with your spouse if you're married or, if applicable, with your kids or your grandkids. That there would be a welling up of prayer in your life because it's just where you want to be. It's where you want to go. It's what you want to see happen. Drawing closer to the Lord in prayer that that would be a natural part of your day. So for five weeks, that's what we've been endeavoring. We've been moving around the Bible, learning new facets of prayer as we've come back each week. We started with Nehemiah's prayer five weeks ago, then we went to the Lord's prayer, then back into the Old Testament to the Psalms as a prayer book, and then to Jesus' invitation last week that we would ask, seek, and knock in prayer. And now we're at the fifth and final Sunday in our series. We're back to the Old Testament for one last message before next week we come back for Palm Sunday. And it's been a rich and varied journey, and I just hope that we have been successful in sowing into your prayer life. And time will tell. I read a quote once that said, no prayer, no significant results. Little prayer, little significant results. More prayer, more significant results. Much prayer, much significant results. And I think the Bible would tell us that's true it's not very complicated and we certainly see that principle demonstrated for us in the text today second chronicles second chronicles is not a book that we have typically spent much time in and i personally will illustrate that down through the years i have tried to have at least one commentary on each book of the bible and a commentary is a book that takes you through a book of the bible and kind of works through the text. And so that's been my goal, doing what I do. And, and you in your own field might have a, you know, similar books that you would resource. And so to date, I just counted yesterday, I have over 80 commentaries for the books of the Bible. And my wife says I need to keep an eye on how much room we have for books at our house. So it's over 80. But not one of those 80 was on the books of First and Second Chronicles. Not a single one until this week I fixed it and picked one up. But these lesser known books, they're just as inspired by God as any other book of the Bible, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, as God's Word says. And today we find this gem of a passage in Second Chronicles. And so what I'd like to do today is tell this story of Jehoshaphat, what happened, and how he responded. And Just like five weeks ago with Nehemiah, we're going to see his immediate response in the face of what happens is to go to God in prayer. And in Jehoshaphat's prayer, we'll see today five ways that he responds in prayer. Five things that he prays. And that's going to be the focal point of the message. Originally, when I mapped this out and even worked through the study materials, I thought I would also tell you what happens after our passage like the, the result of this prayer. But then time-wise, it's just not there this week. So what I thought I would do is we'll come back to this in the fall. Got a Sunday picked out, and we'll hear part two. You know, John does such a good job selecting our songs. He reads the text, and he looks at the music. And so we're singing that song, I raise a hallelujah, my weapon is a melody. It's perfect, perfect. And so we'll get back to that part of the story In the fall. But let's start now by walking through these initial verses. Verse 1. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, with some of the Munites, came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. So let's orient ourselves now where we're at in the Old Testament. This is the time of the divided kingdom. So, under David, that's the guy who beat the giant, and then his son Solomon, Israel is this one united vast kingdom, but after Solomon, his sons split it in half. They couldn't get along, and from then on, you have the nation of Israel to the north. It has then a new capital city called Samaria, and the nation of Judah to the south with its capital, Jerusalem. So it's a divided kingdom, and they each have their own succession of kings. As we enter the story in Second Chronicles 20, we're in the southern kingdom, in Judah, This is about 800-some years before Christ. And Jehoshaphat is the king. Now, of all the trending baby names that I have ever seen, I've never seen Jehoshaphat make the list. And it is a doozy of a name. In fact, it's one that then is varied in its pronunciation. Maybe you have heard Jehoshaphat before. And now here I'm saying Jehoshaphat. It's kind of tomato-tomato, so you can pick which one works for you. Though I did feel somewhat justified in checking the Hebrew consonant, and it is the letter shin, which makes the sh sound. I'm running with Jehoshaphat. But if you look back at that map, you can see the kingdom of Judah on the left. And I circled the capital city, Jerusalem. And then there's this alliance of these other nations that are coming against them. And that's over on the right. You see Ammon, Moab, And then, Meunites is another way of saying the people who are from Edom. In seminary, I remembered these three nations by this acronym, AME, A-M-E, because these nations will come up a lot in your Bible reading. And so from north to south, it's Ammon, Moab, and Edom. And they've come together here for a sneak attack against Judah. Verse 2. Verse 2 says, some people came and told Jehoshaphat, and here's what they said, a vast army is coming against you from Edom. So from this alliance in the south, from the other side of the Dead Sea. The text says it is already in Hazazon Tamar, that is in Gedi. So by the time Jehoshaphat finds out about this, this huge army is already inside Judah. And so that's where this army is encamped. But Jehoshaphat is not so amused. Verse 3 Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. So, word gets to Jehoshaphat, and he is shocked and dismayed, and he does two things. And we're going to start with the second. That is, he proclaims a fast for all of Judah, for the whole country. Now, fasting, as you know, is to refrain from eating. And in the Bible, we often see fasting connected with concerted prayer, with fervent prayer. So something serious is going on. You'll see the people of God respond by fasting and praying. And seeing Jehoshaphat proclaim a national fast got me thinking a little bit about our own country and our own history. So I want to ask you, when do you think the last time was that a U.S. president called for a national day of prayer and fasting? That's the key, that second item. So I did some homework on this, and from what I could tell, in the true sense of an authoritative call for a national fast, you would have to go back to 1918 over a hundred years ago. And you would go back to Woodrow Wilson during World War I. It was the spring of the final year of the war. And he called for a national fast. And there's only two other presidents that have ever done this. And they're before him. The first one who ever did it was John Adams, actually twice, 1798. And 99, at that time, with the threat of war with France. They even thought there's this looming French invasion. The French ships were just patrolling on the Atlantic. And so he called for fasting and prayer. And the third example, maybe the one, if you know a little bit of this history, you would have guessed, probably the most well-known, was Abraham Lincoln. It's interesting, all three of these examples, too, happened in the midst of war or threat of war. So Abraham Lincoln, Civil War, 1863. Listen to what he called it. He proclaimed a national day of humiliation, prayer, and fasting. And it was a Thursday. And instead of everybody going to work, he had everyone gather to pray. And here's what he said. This is what he wrote in his proclamation. He said, we have forgotten God. We have vainly imagined In the deceitfulness of our hearts, that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves to confess our national sins. I cannot imagine a modern president saying anything like that. its probably why it's been over a hundred years. But for Jehoshaphat, he knew it was time to fast. And the other thing that he did, it says before that in the verse, is he resolved to inquire of the Lord. And the word that's used there for inquire is the Hebrew word darash. Darash. It means to seek. And the most frequent thing that someone seeks using that word in the Bible is God. Psalm 24, those who seek, those who darash your face, O God of Jacob. To seek is an expression of loyalty and devotion to God. So it's inward devotion, it stems from the heart, and then it expresses itself in outward obedience. And so our kids' ministry approach, where, where so many of our kids are spending time right now, it is not behavior modification. That is not what you will hear us instruct to kids. But it's heart modification. Learning to seek Jesus. That sounds like our mission statement, doesn't it? Learning to seek Jesus out of love and devotion that then leads to what? It leads to character formation and obedience to God's word. In the Bible, the reward for darash, for seeking, is finding. The reward is being answered. And that's what Jehoshaphat is doing. And we read that he's not alone. Verse 4. The people of Judah came together to seek help. There's that word again. To seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to do what? To seek him. So not only has Jehoshaphat proclaimed a national day of prayer and fasting, but it actually worked. And people are coming from all over Judah, and they're responding to this call to prayer. And that's emphasized when it says they came from every town in Judah. And so we keep reading in verse 5. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord, In the front of the new courtyard, and said, and we'll pause there for a moment just to think on this preface to the actual prayer that's coming. And so we see the people have gathered for public prayer. They're in Jerusalem at the temple. And you can see I picked this black and white sketch for uh, demonstrating this scene. This picture is is the one I picked because it shows a detail that I could not find in any of the other pictures. And so do you see, do you notice, who is in attendance? I know it's a little fuzzy, but down on the bottom, on the left, you see a woman and her children. All the other pictures I looked at from this scene in the Bible, they, they missed it. But here it is, this detail that we read later in verse 13. So not in our reading, but right where Sherry left off in verse 12, we'd read verse 13 says, All the men of Judah, with their wives and children and little ones, stood there before the Lord. Seeking the Lord is for the whole family. And so that's exactly what they did. Now next comes the actual prayer. But I want to give you a preview of what Jehoshaphat prays, because these five aspects that you see provide an outline for what you and I can follow in our own prayers. So these five things, praise, trust, lament, ask, wait. And I was trying to think of a mnemonic device that would help us remember this a little bit. You know, Katie was helping the kids remember something, and and I was taken back to elementary school when Pluto was still a planet and we would say some of you know what's coming my very educated mother just served us 9 pizzas at least in Wisconsin that's how we did it we remembered so I was trying to think of something like this and and I came up with this for Jehoshaphat's prayer pizza that large always wins you might have something better. You know, this is a little take-home assignment. You've got to come up with a mnemonic device for P-T-L-A-W. I'd love to hear what you come up with. But praise, trust, lament, ask, wait. Now, I did think of hand motions. This is not in my notes, but I was just toying around with this yesterday. You want to see this? I'm learning things from Katie and Carol and our elementary educators. So here's the hand motions I came up with. Praise... I'm going to make you do this in just a moment. So, praise, trust, lament, ask, wait. Should we try it together? All right. Praise, trust, lament, ask, wait. Do you remember that? Pizza, that—no, I'm kidding. <laughs> All right. Praise, trust, lament, ask, wait. Verse 6, here we go. This is how it starts. Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. So track this with me. Jehoshaphat has just received horrifying news. A vast army is about to attack 25 miles away as the crow flies, is in Getty. And the first thing that he does in prayer is to praise God. The very first words out of his mouth, he says, Are you not the God who is in heaven? Because if that's the case, it doesn't matter who is in Getty. Our God is in heaven. Putin's in Russia. Xi Jinping's in China, Modi in India, but God is in heaven. He rules over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in his hand. No one can withstand him. Jehoshaphat starts by lifting up true and praiseworthy things about God. And for him, that puts the whole picture into perspective. And he stays in this theme of praise, but watch now as he gets more specific. Verse 7. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? So you see, he's going from general praise in verse 6 to now remembering something specific that God has done in verse 7. And he remembers how God gave them this land to begin with. He's saying, in a paraphrased sense, God, you did something amazing back then. You drove out the Canaanites and you gave this promised land to your people. And notice the word, forever. He's remembering this covenant promise. You gave this land to Abraham, your friend, and his descendants forever. So he's saying, why would that change now? Just as Katie said with the kids, God, you always keep your promises. So I'm wondering now, as we think on this theme of praise, when you and I pray, do we begin with praise? Because I know, at age 41, having walked with the Lord for decades now in my life, I know that my instinctive reaction is still... To pick up prayer and go to God when I'm in a pickle. then to say, God, I'm in a pickle and I need you to get me out. It's like we're hardwired into this self-focused human framework. Where I'm on cruise control when things are good. And I am on high alert all of a sudden when that gets shaken up. And then I'll go right to God for what I need. But Jehoshaphat does something else, doesn't he? Like Nehemiah. Like Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, He starts with praise. And that is what you and I want to do. This is the way to begin. And we can ask the Holy Spirit to teach us to pray this way. That there is a new way that He can teach us in how to start our prayers. That God's praise in any situation would be the first thing that we wake up thinking about. And it would be the first thing prayer that we pray, and it would be the first thing that we finish with when our heads are back on the pillow at night. Praise God. That's where we begin. From praise, we now move to trust in verses 8 and 9. It's a longer pair of verses here, but it's going to communicate one thing. What all this is saying, it's a statement, it's a prayer of trust. He's praying They, your people, have lived in it. He's talking about the land. They've lived in the land and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress and you will hear us and save us. That's a prayer that boldly says, God... No matter what comes, we trust you. If calamity comes, sword, plague, famine, we trust you. When it hits the fan, when things go wrong, we will cry out and you will hear us and save us. That's exactly what Jehoshaphat and the people are doing. And so you and I, by application now, we can ask, is that also what I do in distress? Is that what you and I do? What wins the day for you? Is it doubt? Or is it trust? Now that is not to say that there is not room to wrestle with doubt. We do. There's every bit of permission for that. The people of God and the Bible show that. But in the end, do we know enough to doubt even our doubts? And to lean on trust more than fear? Let's keep moving as we consider that. From trust, now we go to lament. That was this one, lament. Here's how Jehoshaphat feels about this situation, verses 10 and 11. He says, But now here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, it's another way of saying Edom, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they're repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. So what's Jehoshaphat doing here? He is decrying the injustice that's happening. He's lamenting this tragedy and saying it's not fair. And he goes back to the story. If we had more time, we'd flip there, but it's in Deuteronomy 2 where God tells the Israelites not to harm the Ammonites, Moabites, or Edomites And his reason for saying that is because they're descendants of guys like Esau and Lot to whom God has made promises. But Jehoshaphat says, look, we did that. We passed them by back then. I was obedient. I listened. I did the right thing. And now we're going to pay for it as their armies wipe us out. What I notice about Jehoshaphat here is he doesn't sugarcoat this. He doesn't just stay with praise and trust because he's afraid to be real with God. No, he gets right to the point and he takes his lament to God. He's saying, this is what's wrong, God. This is what I need you to fix. This is how I need help. And my hope for you after studying five weeks of prayer is that you would know what it's like to pray this directly and to pray this boldly to God. Not because you or I deserve it. That's never going to happen. But because we have this relationship with God because of the cross. This heart to heart, personal relationship that you have with God is because of what Jesus has done. So Hebrews 4 says we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. That's what Jehoshaphat does next. He has told God what's wrong. That's the lament. And now he approaches the throne to ask for what he needs. Verse 12. He says, Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. Now keep in mind, if we were reading earlier chapters about Jehoshaphat, we would see he was an extremely successful king thus far. His strength is stated in chapter 17, including the measure of his army. And it's impressive. The numbers are impressive. But Jehoshaphat knows he cannot rely on any strength of his own. He can only rely on God. And so he asks for God to judge their enemies. Now, for you and I, we just have to acknowledge judging, for us, has all these negative connotations in the world that you and I live in. But that is, I think, because we confuse it with something else. We confuse it with the word judgmental to be excessively critical. But that's not what we're talking about here. To ask for God's judgment is to ask for Him to establish what is right. That he would determine justice and carry it out. And so having acknowledged how powerless they are and asking for God, the righteous judge, to step in, there remains now in the conclusion of the message only one thing left to do. And that is to wait. The prayer finishes with this line. I just love this verse. Underline this in your Bible. Take this with you. It's the last line of his prayer. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. My brothers and sisters, I don't know what specific challenge is looming over you right now as you read and hear these words. I don't know what enemy has invaded your life. I don't know what situation has you feeling pretty close to powerless and saying, we don't know what to do. But I can almost guarantee at each table there is something that comes to mind for each person. Here we're studying this passage. Esther and I, We're facing a surprising challenge that popped up just in the last couple of weeks. And here I am in my study reading 2 Chronicles 20. And these these are our words. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I bet there's a lot for you to keep your eye on. I know that there is a lot that will compete for your attention. There's a lot of things that will ask for your misplaced trust. And I'm telling you this morning with Jehoshaphat, don't buy it. Don't measure your own army. For there's only one who is worthy. There's only one who is strong enough. There is only one who hears. There is only one who will take care of you, body, life, and soul. And that is the living God. Let's seek him now in prayer. Lord, we praise you as we begin our prayer that you are the God who hears. You are the God who is strong and mighty and you stand above all nations and you stand sovereign, Lord, over the affairs of our life. Lord, we trust you. We, your people, proclaim today that we will trust you. And so, Lord, we bring our heart cries before you. We ask you for help. And now we wait. We wait before your throne of mercy. We wait in the name of Jesus. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to the Y Church podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at the